If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to go to the book of Colossians. We're going to continue to make our way through the book of Colossians tonight, looking at Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23, thinking about this idea, Christ our great Redeemer. And so, uh, looking forward to continuing uh, working our way through the book of Colossians over the next few weeks as we zero in on sometime finishing this book. So, uh, don't know when that will be. Uh, praying that we get a lot out of it rather than trying to figure out when the end will be. So, if you're there in Colossians chapter 1, if you'd stand with me as we pay honor to the reading of God's word tonight. Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. And you, who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord, and we should praise him for it, uh, that he keeps it for us, that he allows us to study it, read it, and know it. Let's pray together this evening. Father, thank you tonight for your word. Thank you for what it means to those of us who have been converted, those of us who come to know you, how it molds us and shapes us and transforms us into your image. And Father, we're thankful for it tonight, and we're asking that you would work in a mighty and powerful way uh, through it in our own lives tonight as we gather to hear the word preached. God, we know that we're not the only people in the city who've been entrusted with this message of the gospel. Maybe foolish for us or arrogant, no doubt prideful to think that we're the only people who can carry it out. And so we want to pray for other churches in our city. We want to lift them up and ask that you would bless them. We could think of the college ministry at Graceway, under the direction of Zach Peel, we just ask that you would pour out your richest blessings on them, that you would uh, be with Zach as he leads and preaches to those college students. We think of Ridgecrest tonight, Father, with uh, their new pastor voted in, Jeremy Munez, and we, we're so thankful that you would bring other godly men who are committed to preaching your word to our city to help us reach people who don't know you. So, Father, we just ask that you would watch over Jeremy Watch over his family. Uh, be with the transition that takes place there, Father. Then also tonight, God, we're mindful that there are people around the globe who are serving you. We're also mindful that you're working to set the stage for the next generation of missionaries uh, that will go out and serve and, and, and will reach people for the gospel. And so tonight we think of Dr. Paul Chitwood and his family, newly elected as the uh, IMB president. God, we just ask that you would watch over their family as they transition to Richmond as they uh, get ready to lead uh, the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the arm of our missionaries. God, we just ask that you would continue to raise up people. And to that end, we know that tonight in, in Louisville, Kentucky, cross conference is taking place. And there are thousands of college students who are right now being challenged with the need to go and be uh, on mission for you, whether that's in their city or across the globe. And so we just ask that you would raise those college students up, you'd raise college students out of our own college ministry to go 
uh, to the four corners of the block and then on to the four corners of the globe. And Father, we also know tonight that there are people, and this is the reason why we're asking you, imploring you to raise up people. We know tonight that there are people groups all over our world who have never heard your name. We think of the Magar people in Nepal, the Tanan people in China, God, neither of them have any converts to Christ. So I ask that you would raise up from our church, from our college ministry, from our city, from our state, from our country, someone who will go and take the message of the gospel to those people who are far from you, who have never been reached. And we never take for granted, Father, what it means to gather and worship, what it means to gather and pray together, what it means to gather and read your word, to hear it preached. God, that we take it for granted that we get to do this three times a week while other people halfway around the world have never even heard your name. So, Father, let the word dwell in us richly and spur us outward beyond into our neighborhoods, into our communities, into our classrooms, to our friends and to our family to reach them with the gospel. We ask these things in your son's precious and holy name. Amen. You know, one of the things that I've really come to deplore in life are step-by-step directions to put uh, any piece of furniture together. In fact, most of the stuff that we own, uh, because I lack the sanctification to be able to put it together, actually gets put together by Jess. Because I literally uh, struggle in every sense of that word uh, to put things together because uh, sprocket C goes into joint F, which is connected with C2-7B piece 15. And I'm like, how does that, there aren't even those pieces here. Like, I know this made sense. Uh, depending on where you bought it from, it could be, I know this made sense to some engineer who is sitting in China drawing up these plans or to some small Swedish guy uh, in some upstate part of Finland uh, or, or Sweden or wherever he's from that Ikea furniture comes from. That stuff's just like if you want to test your sanctification, just you could just drive to Kansas City, pick up some Ikea furniture, bring it back and uh, you'll see how quickly uh, you can be tested, but I, 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 it's not helpful to me, and it's probably because of how my my brain works. I'm I'm a reader. Uh, I I read, and that's how I learn. I would tell teachers often, just shut up, give me a book. If you could just give me the directions, I can read it and learn it that way. You know, we think about step by step instruction helps us to really understand how things fit together. Hopefully it does. I think in these three verses in particular tonight, Paul gives us right at the end of this great hymn that's often referred to um, in, from verse 13 on, coming down to, to verse 20. He gives us a great application of what it means now that we see Christ rightly. He gives us this great application of what it means to be a follower of Christ. What are the necessary steps? How does one move from pre-converted to converted and then, and then onward from there? And so it helps here, probably because of how I learned to think of it as a step-by-step process. It might not help you. I find the Apostle Paul much more helpful than I ever have any piece of furniture that I put together. 
with the exception of probably the chair that sits in my office that I try to occasionally read books in. This particular passage has been so convicting to me this week. And I think for this particular reason, because when you're reminded of what Christ has done for you, I think if you're genuinely, genuinely converted in your own heart, you're stirred to love Christ more. I think that's why we sometimes maybe we're not stirred as much as we should be because we're not actually spending enough time in the word to be stirred in that way. I would not, according to any Bible reading plan, uh, have started here in the new year, uh, provided that I'm just by God's providence preaching through it. And yet God has allowed this particular passage again to stir me up to love Christ more. Which makes sense, right? Because if we think about the, the whole sermon series going through the book of Colossians, calling it steady and being rooted on and founded on Christ, this should happen quite regularly as we go through the book of Colossians. And here as we, in my mind, as Paul begins to turn the corner and really start to expound the heavy parts of this particular book to teach these Colossians these things, he begins to unpack for them the necessity of Christ being most preeminent, most glorious, most exalted, most beautiful. Whatever word you want to come to to describe first and foremost, the Apostle Paul is beginning to unpack this. And in these three verses, he gives us really, I think, guiding markers, if you will, that help us to understand why Christ is our great redeemer. And so tonight, three simple tracking devices, if you will, to help us track through the passage. We begin, first of all, with our pre-converted state, or we could call it pre-conversion. I've been particularly helped in my life by a pastor out of Washington, D.C., called uh, by the name of Mark Dever. Uh, He has said something that in his book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism, that has just stood with me since I first read it. And that is that he refers to lost people or people who are unconverted as pre-Christians. Because Christians, above all else, should be the most hopeful that any person we encounter and share the gospel with would eventually place their faith and trust in Christ. And so why not, instead of referring to them as lost or pagans, refer to them as pre-Christians, people who genuinely need to hear about the good news of Christ. Maybe they haven't, or they have, and they have not accepted Christ, trusted in him. So we see here in verse 21, and you who once were alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works. Paul wants to remind the Colossians of who they were before they were converted. He understands, rightfully so, the Apostle Paul, that is, that part of the Christian life is that you never forget who you were before Christ saved you. I think we sometimes are tempted to forget this, but the Apostle Paul won't. In fact, he tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Here's a guy who wrote 13 books of the New Testament. Here's a guy who discipled many people who would go on to plant churches. 
think of even the church at Colossae. This isn't a direct church plant of the Apostle Paul. He sent out Epaphras, who planted the church in Colossae, who planted the church in Laodicea. And yet, the Apostle Paul reminds Timothy, a young minister of the gospel, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief. Far too often, myself included, we are quick to exalt ourselves to think we are far better than what we really are. But the Apostle Paul wants the Colossians to remind themselves honestly of this, that prior to Christ, you were the chief sinner. And he uses two phrases to communicate this truth. He says in verse 21, who once were alienated. You're alienated. And this word alienated carries with it the idea of this lack of harmony in regards to their relationship with God. The, the Colossians believers, and you who have genuinely accepted Christ, were out of step. You weren't in harmony with God. You were alienated. You were afar off, the Apostle Paul will say in later passages. They were, and it's not just that you were kind of out of step. You know, this idea of being in a tiff with God only to be slightly reconciled and then go back in as if you can bounce in and out of being right with God and not right with God. It, it's a continual, continuous alienation. It's not a partial alienation. It's not you're half in and you're half out. No, this is complete and utter like just the opposite of being, think about your best friend in the whole world. And then never being in step with them in their entire relationship. Even that pales in comparison because God is so holy, just, and mighty that to be out of step with him reminds us of the fact that we're worthy of hell and damnation. And, and here's what's funny about it. Here's what's funny about it. It's not funny. Look at the second phrase. He says, an enemies in your mind by wicked works. Here, the translation is helpful. Uh, this is, I happen to be reading from the New King James. He says, enemies in your mind by wicked works. Enemies in your mind carries with it this idea that human beings prior to their conversion view God as their natural enemy. Not God viewing man as his enemy, but man viewing God as his enemy. It means prior to being converted, you viewed God as your enemy. It makes sense when you read the Apostle Paul. In Ephesians, he will also refer to this. But it makes sense here in Colossians as we read it. When we hear that someone say something to the effect of God is a moral monster or, or, or something to the effect of, well, the God of the Old Testament is just a, a God of wrath and he's inconsistent and he, he just strikes out at people. We should not be surprised when lost people say those things. We shouldn't. Because in their darkened minds, they view him as their enemy. The opposite is Romans 5, 8. 
But God commends his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's the opposite of viewing someone as your enemy. And the Apostle Paul says in the book of Romans, no one will die for an unrighteous person, and they might die for a righteous person. But no one dies for an unrighteous person. No one steps to take the electric chair or to be injected with uh, life-ending drugs for someone who is a serial killer or a child molester. No one steps into that place. But yet Christ does with all of us because in our lost condition, in our pre-converted state, in our depravity, we cannot save ourselves. Someone must save us. Someone must die for us. So make no mistake, beloved, if you don't view God rightly prior to conversion. But if you're sitting in here tonight and you've never genuinely trusted in Christ, you don't view him rightly. You don't see him rightly. You don't understand him rightly. But how can you? You're alienated. You view him as your enemy. And this may seem, okay, this is heavy. I like what Peter O'Brien says. He says, the gravity of their, their previous condition, referring to the Colossians, serves to magnify the wonder of God's mercy. The whole point of reminding us of our fallen condition, the whole purpose behind preaching the gospel to yourself daily and reminding yourself, I'm a sinner in need of God's grace, is not to beat yourself over the head, but to remind you of the unending mercy, grace that comes from God and Him alone. So tonight, you sit and maybe you've become just numb or you've forgotten or you begin to tell yourself lies. I'm not really that bad. I don't stand in need of God's grace. I don't really need this or I don't really need God's love and mercy here or, or I'm better than what everybody thinks. Beloved, it doesn't matter what you and I think about ourselves ultimately matters is what God thinks of us and says of us. And if you have never genuinely trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, the Bible is clear. God genuinely sees you as someone made in his image, but fallen because of your sin nature, desperately in need of God's grace. And only, the only hope for you is to place your faith and trust in Christ. Or is it a Christian who sits in here tonight? And even for the Christian who stands in here tonight, the gravity of the situation is this. Far too often, you and I are guilty of thinking better about ourselves. And what leads from that point is to diminish what Christ has done for us. High view of myself leads to a low view of God. 
It's only when I rightly remember what I've been saved from and to that I begin to praise the one who saved me from and to something far better. It's a challenge to you tonight. If you've never trusted Christ, don't put off another day. Put your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. For the Christian, though, remember what you've been saved from. It's easy to be tempted, those of us in the room who were converted at a young age, to think I wasn't really converted out of that much bad stuff. But we can't forget that Christ's death on the cross is for all sin, past, present, and future. Meaning that, yes, you may not have been doing what the world deems as the greatest of all sins, but any sin is an affront to God, and He's not only saving you from the sins you have committed, but the sins that you have committed today, you will commit tomorrow, and you will commit the rest of your life. So take heart. Don't diminish what you've been converted from just because it happened at such and such a place or at this stage in your life or you weren't as bad as that person. As if Christ needs somehow to vindicate himself and look better by converting worse off people. Which leads us directly into conversion. This is pre-converted state that we that our Christians live in. And then there is our conversion that takes place. And what takes place in that conversion is glorious and beautiful. And Paul highlights it here in verse 21. Yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. Paul uses the language here of reconciliation You've been brought from darkness to light. You've been moved from the kingdom of death to the kingdom of life. You've been redeemed. You've been, you've been radically redeemed and saved. He's reconciled you. But make no mistake, this reconciliation doesn't come cheap. It's not easy. The Apostle Paul reminds us of that, saying he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death. He died a literal death, not a figurative death, not uh, some death that's not actually death, as liberal theologians would have us to believe, that somehow Christ goes through all of the pain and agony on the cross only to faint and pass out, only to miraculously in the grave after being beaten, mocked, whipped, scourged, crown of thorns he passes out he goes in the grave and then he wakes up and you know it's pretty easy to recover from that in a couple hours because you don't lose very much blood and push a stone away from a grave that's designed to keep you in oh and by the way there's a centurion guard there which is a pretty large group of troops that is stationed there to protect because they thought the disciples might come in and steal the body this is this wound theory that's often talked about. Beloved, Christ dies a real death. 
a full and complete death. Because his blood is shed for us, but he must defeat death, sin, and the grave as well. And three days later, to fulfill prophecy, but also to accomplish what is necessary and required, Christ, through his death and his resurrection, is able to reconcile people like you and me to himself. And in this reconciliation, look what he does to you and to me. You know, in theological language, two things happen at the moment of conversion uh, regarding who you are. We, we talk about them this way. You're, you're positionally made right. You're positionally sanctified. And this is what the Apostle Paul is talking about here. He's talking about you're positionally made right before Christ. You're holy. You're blameless. You're above reproach. It uses the word holy here in verse 22. As a result of the faith union with Jesus Christ, God sees Christians as he sees Christ. Not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. Not because of something we've done, but because of something Christ has done. He's able to see us as holy. John MacArthur has helped to gel my thinking around these words, thinking about the holiness of God, this idea that he sees us in a way that we can't even see ourselves. He also sees us, verse 21, or verse 22, excuse me, and blameless. He's presenting you holy and blameless. This idea of, being without blemish or spot based on what Christ has done, that you are holy. And we think of that lamb that's slaughtered at Passover time, presented to God as that lamb was presented to God to atone for our sins, yet we are made blameless, something we couldn't ever do. You read your Old Testament, that's why you can't unhitch it from your New Testament you got to read it. You read those Old Testament sacrifices and you understand this word blameless, being without spot, without blemish. You understand the importance, the weight, the majesty that it carries with it. He also says that you'll be presented above reproach. Above reproach. This is the idea of going beyond even being blameless. As if you needed something more beyond being blameless also means that no one can bring a charge against us. Oh, how many times are we tempted to believe a lie that the evil one wants to whisper into our ear? How could God love someone like you? How could God love someone who struggles with this particular sin or that particular sin? Whatever the sin is, how could God really love you? God doesn't love me. Or look at me based on the performance of being right before him. But rather the object of the faith that I have of Christ Jesus. Now lest you think this gives you a license to sin. We're going to get there in the last verse. But it's important to remember 
that once we are converted, we are simultaneously made right before God through Christ. I just want to say this here. I don't know this directly in the text, so if you want to take Mark off for being outside the text, here would be the place to do it. But I also think it's worth noting, I was reminded of this today, that we are tasked with proclaiming the gospel, and it is of far more value that the gospel be proclaimed than the person who does it. Um, those of you who know, we traveled home today, and so uh, I was rather anxious because I knew I was going to be coming here and wanted to be back here to preach tonight. Only to uh, be reminded once again of how prideful I am. Um, to think that somehow, some way, that if circumstances would have gone a different way and we would have gotten hung up and missed a flight or not been able to be here tonight that somehow some way the gospel would not be proclaimed unless I was doing it makes for a rather uncomfortable delay when you're sitting on a tarmac waiting to leave and the Lord uses that particular moment on a plane to expose your own sinfulness. Your own pride to think that unless I'm the one who's proclaiming the gospel, it won't be successful. Beloved, may we never get, it's very easy to get into this trap of, oh, the staff people need to do this, or this person, or I want to listen to this celebrity pastor, or I've got to hear this person's voice. It is far more important that the gospel be proclaimed than it come from whoever you perceive to be the right voice. How many times do we sit and say, well, I'm just not blessed with the gift of evangelism as a means to keep us from seeing people genuinely come to know Christ. I don't have that gift. Yes, some people are endowed with the gift of evangelism, to, where it seems like it's just natural, like they could be walking into this room and convert each and every one of these sound barriers to Christ. Like just, boom, each one of them, rather than absorbing the sound, absorbs Christ in that moment, just one by one. That's what it seems like with that particular person. Nothing takes us, and I, I think it's important here, to remind ourselves as we examine our own conversion, but then think about sharing the gospel with others, that it's not just X person's responsibility, as if it's just the pastor's job, or it's just the small group leader's job, or it's just the adult leader's job, or it's just the ministry student's job, or it's just the person who has the gift and the ability. Every person is tasked with taking the gospel to people who are around them that have never heard the name of Jesus Christ or have never genuinely trusted in him. And we will shoot ourselves in the foot as a college ministry if we begin to assign the responsibility of sharing Christ to particular people that seem to be more charismatic than we are. Which means that we have to be in a 
state of growing. We, we must continue to grow. Which is why the Apostle Paul doesn't just say, okay, here's what you were before you were cry- came to know Christ. Here's what your conversion looked like. Here's what Christ did. But then he goes on and highlights the last phase, their post-conversion life. Spiritual growth is necessary. Look at verse 23. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. The Christian life is not over at conversion. It's not over once you come to know Christ. Continuing in the faith is what is required. We have marginalized and we have allowed people who do not genuinely know Christ to continue to believe they are under a false doctrine of once saved, always saved. As if somehow coming down the aisle, shaking a pastor's hand, checking a card, knowing the right answers to tell someone, going through a new members class, and then sitting on a pew, not growing at all, no desire for Christ, no outward sign of love for God and neighbor as a means for genuine conversion. What we mean when we say someone who's been saved once and they're always saved means that when a person trusts in Christ, they will continue to follow after Christ. Again, helpful, this little book, The Gospel and Personal Evangelism by Mark Dever. To the person who's been converted, we say, praise God, he's waiting for you. Praise God, because we know that that is the first and next right step. But wait and see, because we're not just going to assume that because you said some words and you thought, I mean, how many times, how many times as a church are we going to watch adults who say, I thought I was genuinely converted. I said these words, but the more I've thought about it and meditated and the Holy Spirit has drilled a bullseye onto my heart and has convicted me time and time again, I realized I was just doing that to fit in and I never was genuinely converted. We baptized deacons and deacons' wives and members and longtime people time and time again inside this church. And we cannot and we must not forget that just because you say you're saved doesn't mean that you are saved. One need only spend time in Springfield to know that not to be true. Continuing in the faith means I'm rooted, I'm steadfast, I'm committed to the gospel. This is the language that the Apostle Paul uses. Grounded and steadfast and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. This is the great hope that as we continue to study, it it roots us and grounds us and, and it makes us more bold. It makes us more bold, not in the sense that we're a jerk or we're arrogant or mean to people. But it makes us more bold because we're more committed than we've ever been to the truth that Jesus Christ is the hope of the gospel. And without faith in him alone, there is no hope for conversion. It's Christ alone. It's as 
acknowledging and admitting that you are a sinner. It's believing that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and was, what he did and what he continues to do. It's confessing Christ as Savior and putting him as the Lord of your life. It's difficult. You're not going to be perfect at it, but it's a robust commitment. And I think the way that it's amped up, the way that it is supercharged, if you will, is by a robust commitment to continuing to learn the word, growing in prayer, and gathering with other believers to spur us to be rooted in the gospel. And it might surprise you that in that list of things that I think will supercharge us, that I say, I don't say the reading of good books. I, I think there is much benefit, much value. We give out many books. I encourage you, you come to my office, there's many books there. I think there's things that can be learned from them. But two quotes by Spurgeon have rewired my thinking this break. One is, visit many good books, but live in the Bible. And the other, which has been super challenging, nobody ever outgrows scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. It's amazing because there are certain passages that I've read hundreds of times. But when I read them again, I see something or I'm convicted of a different portion or part of it that I wasn't the previous time. I, I think what will change us in 2019 more than anything else, right? All of your New Year's resolutions or New Year, New You, whatever your little moniker of is. You're like, I don't like resolutions. I like commitment, whatever. I think if you say to yourself, I, not just 2019, but every year moving forward, starting this year, though, I'm even more committed to eat more of my Bible than I ever have. And each year I'm just going to eat more of it than I did the year before. Some of you are like, well, I've never read my Bible through in a year. What a great thing to shoot for. But start a little bit shallower. Read the Old Testament and read the New Testament. Maybe take two years and alternate between the two. Some of you have been reading or you've been close to reading your Bible through in a year. Commit. I'm going to get through it this year, but I'm also going to not just get through it to get through it. I'm going to chew on it. I'm going to meditate on it. I'm going to think about it. These words are going to stick in my brain. Psalm 1, the, the, the kind of man who meditates on the law of the Lord. And on his law, I meditate day and night. I'm just thinking about it. Because here's what's going to happen. The more you read the word, the more you're going to be reminded of your fallen condition, the more you're going to be reminded of your conversion, and the more you're going to be reminded that you need to continue to grow in it. It's a cyclical pattern that will push you that way. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge myself. I want to eat more of God's word this year. I want to live in it. I want to be like that 
hog that I drive by in Iowa. You know, hogs are notorious for loving two things, to be covered in mud under the warmth of the sun. Now, he's using this illustration because it's the only one that really gels in my brain, probably because of where I'm from. But I want to be like that. I want to be covered in the word of God. Under the white hot light of the sun. It's the S-O-N, not the S-U-N. I want him to expose the nooks and the crannies of my own heart. I think one of the reasons why, as I've been thinking about the previous years, one of the, the, the previous year, one of the reasons why I think I'm more thankful for 2018 than I am for any other previous year, because in God's strange and kind providence, he's exposed more of my sinfulness to me than any other year in my life. And the more you're exposed to your own sin, the more you can't help but be overwhelmed by God's grace. And the more that you're overwhelmed by your own sin, and the more you're overwhelmed by God's grace extended to you, you can't help but extend that grace to other people, which then leads to sharing the gospel with them. Because you don't respond the way that everyone else does. You don't say things the way that everyone else does. You don't live the way that everyone else does. Let's pray.